Hello again. I was just chuckling a few moments ago, wondering how many people were experiencing the same thing I just experienced when uh, Jim was going around turning the air conditioners on. I thought immediately, thank you, Lord. And my wife said, oh, no. <laughs> Welcome to every car ride we take, right? <laughs> uh, I appreciate the air conditioning. <laughs> we're going to be starting a series today in Second Peter, so I encourage you to have your Bibles open to Second Peter and follow along with our with our reading that Pastor Bob has already done, so I'm not going to actually read through it again, but we'll be touching on a lot of the verses the in this passage as we go through it. Second Peter's kind of a little known New Testament letter, and I just mean that that it's not real often that we find ourselves in a Bible study or hearing a sermon on Second Peter, but it's a letter with a very powerful message as we're going to soon find out. And Peter has an overarching theme. You're probably going to notice the term knowledge mentioned a lot. This theme of the authority and power of God's work in our lives. And there's a reason that he has that theme. It's not going to be um, maybe readily apparent this week because we're not going to get out of chapter 1. And it's not until chapter 2 and 3 that Peter starts talking about a problem that he's, that's really the center, central focus of this letter that he wrote, which is false teachers coming into the church. And although Peter doesn't mention specifically, I don't believe, uh, any sects of religion or false religions, we know that the Apostle Paul talks about these knowledge religions, Gnostics, Gnosticism, and it seems that that's very likely one of the things, at least, that Peter's probably addressing here because these people have, have got some kind of authority that they are basing living their lives on that does not match up with God's Word. And so it's important to know that up front because why is Peter focusing so much on God's Word, on the knowledge of God Himself? And it's because people are coming into the church, they are spreading lies, they are talking about different ways that you should live your life and that it's okay to live your life and they match up in no way with God's Word. So Peter starts right off by saying God's Word is very important and he, he sticks with that theme throughout this whole letter. So there's two questions that I hope will be answered today, and they are questions that I hear people ask often. They're kind of some very fundamental questions that people in church, Christians even, have, and that is, why do I feel like I'm struggling to grow in my faith? Why do I feel like it's just stagnant, like I'm not going anywhere, like my faith isn't, isn't producing uh, more beneficial results? So if you've ever felt like you're struggling, or maybe you feel like you're struggling right now to grow or to uh, just make any headway in your faith, then this passage that we're going to look at today is for you. And the other question is questioning your very salvation. Do you wonder if you truly are saved? Perhaps you're familiar with the doctrines of election, predestination, and you wonder, am I of God's elect? Am I one of them? Have I been chosen? Am I a saved person? 
And Peter is going to directly address that. And hopefully today, the results of this message from Peter will leave you with assurance that if you are saved, that if you are chosen of God, you will be able to walk away firmly believing that. And we're going to see exactly why that's so important. Again, because growing in God's Word, understanding that our life needs to be based in something. Where, what is our source of truth? Our source of truth, our source of knowledge is indeed God's Word. So growing in God's Word and being certain of your salvation are two things that you are going to need to be able to resist any kind of false teachers, any kind of lies that come into the church, that come into your life, that tell you that, it's a, that, that life is a way that it's not according to Scripture. So you have to know that. And if you're not certain of that, as Peter will go on and we'll see in the next couple weeks, you're prone to fall away. You're prone to listen to the lies. So you have to know what the foundation of knowledge is. You have to know where to go to find truth. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's pray before we dig into the passage. And I'm actually going to also pray for our brother, Tim Wells. Forgot to uh, mention him this morning, but he's at a church in Hillsdale. Uh, he's one of our members, but he's at a church in Hillsdale uh, filling in for another pastor this morning, and he's going to be likely preaching uh, now or very soon. So we'll pray for Tim as well. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be able to come to your word today, to be able to see these wonderful truths, to be able to be more assured of, of the, the authority of your word in our lives and the certainty of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that your spirit would go before us, that you would, that you would highlight these things and, and show us in your word and give us that certainty. And Lord, for those who aren't sure and those who perhaps are not saved, I pray, Lord, that that would be clear to them as well and that you would show them your salvation and call them to yourselves. And Lord, I also ask for our, our brother Tim Wells, and I just ask for his, his message this morning for the congregation there, that they would be able to see you, that they would be able to glorify you and know you better through him. So just ask that you would guide him with your spirit as well, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in 1 Peter, we're going to kind of look at this in sections. In, in verses 1 and 2, Peter gives us an introduction to this letter. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. There's a lot of discussion that can be had and has been had over the years um, of why he starts off by saying Simeon Peter. It, that Simeon seems to, when it's Simon Peter in other places, Simeon um, seems to be an Aramaic way of saying Simon. So Simon Peter is introducing himself as the author of this, and he says right off the bat that he is a slave and an apostle. Those are two opposite ends of the power and status spectrum. A slave, no power, no status. An apostle, someone who has authority, someone who has lived with Christ and has authority to speak and preach on his behalf. And I think it's very important for this letter, for what Peter's going to tell us throughout the whole thing, to know that Peter sees himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's particularly going to come out when we talk later about Peter's reason for writing this, as, as Bob has already mentioned, as a way of reminding us of, of 
these truths that we're going to be speaking about, but Peter is just like us. He is a devout, he is a slave. When I say like us, I'm talking about believers who are our servants and slaves of Jesus Christ ourselves. No different than Peter, and he also says that we have been granted, in verse 1, a faith just like his, just like the apostles. The faith, there's no distinction. We have been saved by the blood of Christ. The apostles have been saved by the blood of Christ. Our faith is the same faith, and Peter's acknowledging that by saying, I also, like I'm going to be explaining to you, as your status is, is a slave of Christ. But it's also important that he says that he's an apostle. And the reason I'm even bringing this up is because there's not too many letters in the New Testament that start out like this. I think Paul only does this once. He usually calls himself a slave, or sometimes he'll call himself an apostle, but rarely does he introduce himself as a slave and an apostle. And I'm just certain that Peter is doing this for a reason. But Peter tells us that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ because, as I already mentioned, one of the main themes of this book is that the authority of God's Word has to be foundational in our lives. The authority of God's Word, of the knowledge of God, has to be what guides our lives, what tells us what godliness actually is. And so we have to understand that the authority of an apostle is something that we need to listen to because it is given to them by God. And that's one of the criteria for the books of the Bible being accepted into the canon of Scripture is that they were um, endorsed by or written by an apostle. And so Peter is an apostle giving authority to this letter that he's giving us. Now, as I mentioned, the audience is, are those who have got the same faith as Peter. But it doesn't just say you have the same faith as me. He says, you have been granted the same faith as us. And that word that Peter uses, that we have been given this faith, granted this faith, means that This isn't a faith that we have done anything to earn. It means that this faith that God has given us is is exactly that. It's a gift of God. It's something that we have done no exertion, uh, no effort of our own has been done to receive this faith that God has given us. But we have the ability to have faith in God because He has given us that. He has done that work in us. His Spirit has regenerated us, giving us even the ability to have faith in the truth that we hear from God. And so one one, um, theologian wrote that it's like having ripe fruit fall in your lap. That's That's how you could rightly understand this faith that has been given to you by God. You didn't do anything to earn it. It fell into your lap. It is a free gift of God for you. So, Peter goes on in verse 2 to continue this foundation, saying that the foundation of life and godliness is found in the rich knowledge of God. Okay, so Peter's really coming, coming on strong here, giving us the foundation of how we can live our lives in godliness. And he says that all we need for growth in godliness, now in 3 and 4, is given by divine power. Okay, so now we're starting to talk about the area of living as a believer. What kind of evidence do we see in our lives of the faith that we have been given by God? He says that this evidence that he's going to talk about in verses 5, 6, and 7 is given to us in the knowledge of God by the power of God. That's important for us to understand 
that there's no other source of our knowledge of, what, of how we should live, of what we should look like as a Christian. Because as we're going to see next week, these false teachers are going to be telling them all kinds of things that lead them away from godly living. So he says the, the, the power that you need, the knowledge that you need, is all found in God. It was found in the teaching of Jesus, it was found in the teaching of the prophets, and now it's found in the teaching of the apostles. And we have all of that today. Okay, here's what I think the key of understanding the rest of what Peter's going to say, that we're, at least what we're going to look at today. He says that through the promises of God, we become partakers of divine knowledge. As believers who have had this work of regeneration done in their lives, in their hearts, their spirit has been made alive, it says that we become partakers of the divine nature. Before we talk a little bit more about that, I want to tell you what the divine nature is not. Because this is another thing that over the centuries of the church age, people have had some discussions about. The divine nature does not mean that we become God. The divine nature doesn't mean that when, when, when the Holy Spirit lives in us, we now are divine. We now are little gods. Or some people think they're big gods. But we're not gods at all. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that because the Spirit is in you, you are every, much, every bit as much the incarnate uh, God as Jesus was. That is not what... Peter is saying, and that is not what Scripture teaches us. There's a different meaning to being partakers of the divine nature. And what he's talking about is what happens to us and our relationship with Jesus upon our salvation. The divine nature is, perhaps the most simply put, seeing Jesus in you. When you become a believer, it says... Uh, Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were spiritually dead, spiritually bankrupt. We were children of wrath, destined for, destined for God's wrath. We loved ourselves, we loved, we loved the ways of the world, and we were dead. And God made us alive. We were made alive by God. In Titus, we see this work of regeneration, of our spirit being made alive. And so we have been made alive by God. We have been given a spirit that is new, a new heart, a heart and a spirit that now love God. We don't love the passions of our flesh, the ways of the world anymore. We now love God. That is part of being made new in Him. And again, we're still talking about the work that God has done in us. This is not anything that we do. This is the work of God in us, giving us this new spirit, giving us a new love. And perhaps most importantly, giving us the Holy Spirit. Because as believers, Scripture clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so now we see a picture, perhaps maybe more clearly, of Paul in this passage that we're all familiar with in regard to the wedding in chapter 5 of Ephesians, but talking about the church and Christ. Christ dying, giving himself up for the church as his bride, and the two becoming one flesh, one body. The church is the body, Christ is the head. We have this intimate relationship with Christ now. 
Christ leading us as we submit ourselves to him and as we follow him. And so hopefully you're starting to see this picture of what it means to be partakers of the divine nature. It's not that we are God at all, but it's that God is in us. We are in Christ, Christ is in us, and as such, our lives should reflect that. Okay, so now we're getting kind of more to the heart of, what, of where Peter's going here. Our, our, our faith can't mean that we have said a prayer one day and, and then we're good with God and nothing needs to change in our lives. And this is kind of going to go to what the next couple chapters are saying with, with this, this freedom to do whatever you want, this freedom to chase these lusts of the flesh, these passions of the world, greed, all of these things that these false teachers are telling them. Peter's about to lay out for us why that's not what the life of a believer should look like. Because we are partakers of the divine nature. So, he tells us in verse 5 to add godliness, add this list of qualities, of these godly qualities to our lives. Because the divine nature in us, we should take on godly characteristics. We should start to reflect the character of Jesus because of the work that the Spirit is doing in us. But it's not just, as, as uh, Alan mentioned this morning, kind of funny that he was talking about that because I don't think he knew I was talking about this passage today. Uh, you know, the, this, is, this is not a faith where we can just say, I've been saved, I can let go and let God. I mean, that's kind of been a, that's a popular phrase that people use sometimes. Peter's going to show that there is effort, a great effort, a diligence that needs to be applied by us to grow in this faith that we have. And if we truly have this faith, that growth will be seen. One other thing I'd like to add about this this list that he gives us here, which I will just, I will read verses 5 to 7 again. For this very reason, for the, for the very reason that you have been a partaker of the divine nature, that you have been saved, that you have been transformed, made a new creature in Christ, for this new reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and I want to be clear here, he's not saying that this has anything to do with your salvation. He's not saying that if you don't have these, th that you need to do these things in order to be saved in God. He's saying the opposite of that. He's saying that if your faith is real, if Christ has, if, if the Spirit has given you a new spirit yourself, made your spirit alive, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then these things are going to be evident in your life. So he's saying make an effort to add these godly virtues to your life, which are virtue or excellence, moral excellence, and to virtue, add knowledge, and to knowledge, add self-control, and to self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, add godliness, and godliness, brother, uh, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, add love. It's interesting that if you're looking at an ESV, so it's funny that some Bibles translate this differently, but if you look back in verse 3, it says that through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, he has granted us everything that we need for lives of godliness through his own glory and excellence. That is the same word that is used down here for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue in my translation, but that word in some translations is also excellence, and it actually is the same word. 
So we kind of get this idea of if you have been made new in Christ, if you are a partaker of the divine nature, well then if God is morally excellent, then you should be morally excellent. If you are now a child of God because of the work that He has done in you, then you should reflect His character. The God that called you to excellence, be excellent. As the Father is, as your heavenly Father is, so you also ought to be. That seems to be what Peter is saying here. I also would like to point out the fact, and we'll, we'll flesh this out a little bit more in a minute, but the godliness that Peter is talking about here is referring more to our practical conduct, more to our character, more to how he is transforming us and we are living our lives than it is to devotion to service. So I don't want to have uh, kind of get our wires crossed in what godly conduct means. It doesn't mean just being you know, devout to being a, a children's teacher or devout to any particular service for the church. He's talking about how, the, how your character is changed to, to a godly virtue, to a moral excellence, to a way of being rather than just a, a matter of doing, although some of these come out in what we do. But it's not the devotion to that service, it's how we, who we are and how that comes out in us. So if our our life, our pursuit of knowing Jesus is going to be fruitful, Peter says. If we want to be fruitful and effective, then 